This is the podcast from Madison's First Baptist Church. This is Dr. Chuck McGaffey coming to you as we are going through a series of messages this summer from the book of Genesis. I think the book of Genesis is a marvelous book, often too often misunderstood. Uh, Too often the focal point is put in the wrong direction and we miss some of the mightiest lessons that are here in this book. Today is one of those. And I hope that you will think along with me about the questions that we might ask of the text and learn from it as we go along. The Midrash as the ancient Hebrews applied and as we are well done to apply ourselves. This is from Genesis 29, 15 through 29. This is for the ninth Sunday after Pentecost. And uh, this is my sermon that will be preached on July 30th, 2023. Just a word about July this year. Uh, It has been a a mixed blessing. Uh, In my personal life, I've enjoyed some great successes. But in my ministry, it has been extremely stressful. Uh, It has been so because so many of my friends are suffering. Uh, This has been an unusual, unusually demanding time in ministry. Uh, Usually July is a time to kind of glide a little bit, but it has not been that way at all. Uh, So I ask you, I ask you for your prayers I ask you for your support. I ask you for your help because we are church together and we certainly need one another. Well, this is the passage that has this one line in it that got my attention. It's from a biblical uh, individual, uh, a father-in-law named Laban, who says, to Jacob and his children, you, you're my family, my flesh and blood. Now on that basis, let's go and let's look a little closer at what this is all about. But before I do that, I want to read to you a passage from the New Testament. The words of Christ, the meaning of his message to us is what will help us most. This is from the 8th chapter of Romans. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. After God made that decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. After he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. So what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? I have this summer been watching a televised version of a book written in the early 1980s. 
The Handmaid's Tale is a controversial yet deeply engaging portrayal of what might happen to a nation if one religious interpretation of the biblical model of the family were to become the only allowable, the only legal version of marriage and family permitted. The depictions of family life, of marriage, the proper place of men and women, and the punishment for dissenting from the established godly standards are so disturbing, so prophetic, if you will, that many of the women in my life cannot even bear to watch. It is not because the show is too silly, but because it is far too honest about the way religion can be twisted and then applied by the zealous to the harm of others. I think that the truth of the biblical revelation speaks a powerful word for all of us who are struggling to understand his love for us all. Even when we don't perfectly understand marriage, family, love, and human sexuality. The people of the Bible also faced their struggles in these matters, yet God still loved them and stayed with them and gradually guided them to a better path. If you want to get into a devastating fight with someone who shares our faith, start off by disapproving of their marriage or the marriage of someone they care about. Make judgmental statements about the nature of their relationship and be sure to point out that the Almighty is on your side of the argument. In fact, go one further and tell them that the Bible itself sets out in black and white that such and such relationships are condemned in Scripture. Tell them that such behavior will cause God to abandon them and will even determine their very legitimacy as people of Christian faith. Do this and you will no doubt find you have a real problem with people today. But what is even more? You will also find that you will have a problem reading the Bible because the Bible doesn't exactly back that up, at least not in the way you might think. Well, I hope you will not do that, but you will undoubtedly witness that very thing if you hang around the Christian church much these days. The issues regarding human relationships, sexuality, marriage, and parenting are not unique to our age. If we learn anything from the Bible on this, it is to confirm that these have always been issues. Most preachers, me included, don't like to deal with these from the pulpit, mainly because they are so complex and usually produce more heat than light. But alas, some years ago, I made a personal and spiritual commitment to not avoid difficult passages, but to share them with you as I struggle through their meaning as well. When I was first learning to study the Bible, I was taught and I accepted that the Bible is the written word of God. It is how God primarily communicates with his people the life lessons we need in our following of Jesus Christ. So far, so good. But then the tough part starts. Actually reading the Bible. Anyone who has ever believed and done this knows exactly what I'm talking about. 
The examination of the scriptures can be and will be most often an exhilarating experience, a personal interaction with the living God as he speaks through the ancient writers, a fresh word for his children today. Thus read, the Bible is both reassuring and guiding as it reminds us that God is indeed present with us and seeing us through the daily struggles we all face. And that brings us to the 29th chapter of Genesis. Eugene Peterson translates the account of the marriage of Jacob this way. Laban said, Your family, my flesh and blood. When Jacob had been with him for a month, Laban said, Just because you're my nephew, you shouldn't work for me for nothing. Tell me what you want to be paid. What's a fair wage? Now Laban had two daughters. Leo was the older and Rachel the younger. Leah had nice eyes, but Rachel was stunningly beautiful. And it was Rachel that Jacob loved. So Jacob answered, I will work for you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. It is far better, said Laban, that I give her to you than marry her to some outsider. Yes, stay here with me. So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, but it only seemed like a few days he loved her so much. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. I've completed what we agreed I'd do. I'm ready to consummate my marriage. Laban invited everyone around and threw a big feast. That evening, though, he got his daughter Leah and brought her to the marriage bed. And Jacob slept with her. Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her maid. Morning came. And there was Leah in the marriage bed. Jacob confronted Laban, what have you done to me? Didn't I work all this time for the hand of Rachel? Why did you cheat me? We don't do it that way in our country, said Laban. We don't marry off the younger daughter before the older. Enjoy your week of honeymoon, and then we'll give you the other one also. But it will cost you another seven years. Jacob agreed. When he completed the honeymoon week, Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his maid Billah to his daughter Rachel as her maid. Jacob then slept with her, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. He worked for Laban another seven years. The example and the words of our Lord guide us in understanding. Jesus is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Jesus is the word of God. This affirmation I lead us in every week is quite intentional. By saying Jesus is the word of God, I am following the biblical teaching. Jesus as God's word is affirmed in the gospel of John and is, in fact, one way Jesus referred to himself. Once he even said, you search the scriptures in order to find life, but it is they that testify of me. Exactly how they testify of Jesus is an important detail. If we are going to interpret the Bible through the light of Jesus, then how exactly does that work? Is it, as one preacher I read recently wrote with Jesus, there are no red letter distinctions in the Bible because if Moses or the prophets or Paul or Peter or John said it, then Jesus said it through them. His chosen and infallibly appointed Holy Spirit directed messengers. Well, while that may sound pretty good on the surface. It is a frightening way to view the inspiration of Scripture. Let me put his reasoning another way. When you read any part of the Bible, no matter who is speaking or writing, it is coming directly from Jesus. Is that so? I mean, really. 
When we read passages of the Bible, such as I just read, should we understand that this is the or even a model of marriage that God approves? Is this Jesus' instruction? Or is there something in the Bible that we will miss if we cannot allow for human authorship to bear some responsibility? Just a quick review. Let's start with the positive. Jacob loves Rachel. So far, so good. Yes, amen. We agree that love is what marriage should be about. But then the model goes screwy. Jacob buys his wife. He is deceived by his father-in-law and gets her older sister Leah instead. He has already paid for her. A week later, he gets Rachel, who he wanted to marry in the first place. He will work an additional seven years to pay for her. He will practice polygamy, that is being married with more than one person, with Rachel and Leah. But it will always be clear he loves Rachel most. Leah, though, is blessed with children. Rachel becomes jealous of Leah and threatens Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob blows his stack and tells her, I am not God. He is the one who caused you not to have children. So Rachel forces her servant Bilhah to have sex with Jacob and bear a child by proxy. After Bilhah has a couple of kids, Leah, who has stopped bearing children, gets jealous and orders her servant Zilpah to go to Jacob and have sex and bear children in her behalf. If you're keeping track with this marriage, now includes four women. One is loved, another is tolerated, two others are slave, forced to have relations with Jacob by their owners. But then it turns out Leah can still have children, and she does. And then Rachel gets pregnant, and her son Joseph is born. Later, she will have one more child named Benjamin. Okay, let's take a deep breath. Now let's talk about the biblical model of marriage. If we are to buy the logic of some who teach that whatever is spoken of or taught in the Old Testament or anywhere else in Scripture is just as if Jesus said and taught it, then I think we have got a pretty big problem. Truth is, hardly a week goes by that I do not hear of or read some Christian leader use the expression, the biblical model of marriage, to support their argument for what they think marriage is. Now bear in mind that the questions regarding marriage and human sexuality, childbearing and parenting are many. I know that there are several distinctive positions on these topics represented in this small congregation this morning. I just want to address one aspect of that discussion and it is this. When you hear someone citing the biblical model of marriage, beware. Beware because in the Bible there are many examples of marriage and exactly none of them are what they mean when they say the biblical model of marriage. Let's start from the beginning. Adam and Eve were not married. They did not have any choice in their mate. And their children found their parents through incest. If you must read the Bible literally here. So maybe that is not the biblical model. We have also spent some time in our study through Genesis looking at the marriages of Abraham and Jacob. I'd be pretty hard-pressed to utilize these as models of a biblical marriage. Psychologist and writer Valerie Tarko Tariko collected a few facts about marriage as recorded in the Bible. These practices are included in the Bible, but still should disturb us. I have already mentioned polygamy. 
Polygamy is the norm in the Old Testament. At least 40 biblical figures had multiple wives. Uh, this then, there was sex trafficking. The Bible in Exodus 21 provides instructions on how to acquire several types of sex slaves. For example, if a man buys a Hebrew girl and she please not her master, he can't sell her to a foreigner and he must allow her to go free if he doesn't provide for her. Women were regarded as war booty. Virgin females are counted literally among the rewards of war. In the book of Numbers, God's servant commands the Israelites to kill all of the used Midianite women along with all the boy children, but to keep the virgin girls for themselves. In Deuteronomy, the law of Moses spells out a ritual to purify a captive virgin before sex. Is that what God instructed? Or do you think something was lost in transmission? Another way to think of this is to ask, does this sound like the voice of Jesus to you? Now let's consider incest. Incest is mostly forbidden in the Bible, but if we make everything, but if we make everything there as a direct word from God, then God makes exceptions. Abraham and Sarah, much favored by God, are said to be half-siblings. Lot's daughters got him drunk and had sex with him. And then if we read the Bible the way the preacher suggested, God rewards them with male babies who become patriarchs of great nations. Here's another unusual practice regarding a brother's widow. If a brother died with no children, it was a man's duty to impregnate the brother's widow. Onan is actually struck dead by God because he avoided providing an offspring for his brother. A wife's handmaid was actually what we would call a sex slave. After seven childless decades, Abraham's frustrated wife, Sarah, says, Go sleep with my handmaid. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Her slave, Hagar, becomes pregnant. And as I have pointed out today, two generations later, the sister wives of Jacob repeatedly send their slaves to him, each trying to produce more sons than the other. And then there was this family distortion, namely slavery. A man should not have sex with a slave if she is betrothed to another man, but if they do, she is to be beaten and he must sacrifice a sheep. That's said in Leviticus. Could this get any worse? It does. The victims of rape. A Hebrew girl who is raped could be sold to a rapist for 50 shekels or about $580 according to Deuteronomy. He must then keep her because she has been humbled. Please note, apart from forcible rape, female consent is simply irrelevant in the Bible from the time that Eve is created from Adam's rib onward in the Bible. What I'm hoping you can see here is that it is pretty tough to come up with a biblical model of marriage that is anywhere close to what is useful. I wish we could all just admit the truth. The Bible is replete with example after example of a broken humanity, thoroughly infected by sin and desperately in need of grace. That is where our conversation needs to start. You see, even though we have countless models of bad behavior and bad attitudes, the one constant is this. God never, never, never gives up on us. 
He continues to pursue us with His love. If we absolutely need a biblical model of marriage, I think it should include that idea. The idea that we are all in need of God's love and grace. The fact that we so easily get that confused and substitute rules and regulations and even tell others that those are God's ideas and the fact that the one thing God really seems to say and we hear Jesus say to us in the Bible is that we are to love and care for one another as he cares for all of us. That value ought to inform our ideas more strongly than the cultural ideas about marriage and human relationships that have come and thankfully been left behind in the past. That, I believe, is an honest, Christ-honoring model of marriage in all human relationships. And let's face it, the details of what should be are going to be subject for debate for some time to come. But the bottom line for us must always be love others as God loves you. If that is left out, then we will simply miss the point. I learned to read the Bible in a Baptist church. My pastors were wise and good people who wanted us to know how to handle rightly the word of truth. They taught us a system that was helpful. Questions to ask as you read and study the various parts of the Bible. Is there a sin to forsake? Is there any promise to claim? Is there an example to follow? Is there any command for me to obey? Is there anything to be thankful for today? These are still good questions, but quite honestly, none of them are very helpful when it comes to a passage such as this. I think it needs one more crucial question, so I'd like us to ask one more question. Is there something about what Jesus did or said that contrasts with this? But that is a tough question for two reasons. First, we have to own the fact that God really did use human beings. Human beings with all of their limitations to inscribe the books that comprise the Bible. The second reason is that we do not have a hope of figuring it all out apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. Unless we know and follow Him, unless we view the Scripture from His eyes, we will often get the wrong idea, sometimes even the exact opposite of what God intended. When people of His day read in Exodus about retributive justice that demanded an eye for an eye, Jesus tempered the thought. Remember when He said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That is why the words of Jesus often are printed in red, and they should mean more than all the other words of all the other books of the Bible combined. Jesus does not speak directly on the topic of marriage. He mentions divorce. Context was a condemnation of a practice that allowed men to dismiss their wives without any regard for their well-being. For any reason, they so choose. This teaching so upset the men who heard it that they questioned whether or not anyone should marry. Jesus further shocked them by indicating that God loves all people, married and single, 
And that there was even a place in his kingdom for those who did not fit into the traditional roles. That passage from Matthew 19 has been used many ways and some of them are plainly wrong. But the bottom of the idea presented by Jesus moves us strongly toward love and care for one another. As well as an acceptance of those who differ from us. In the end, the discipleship goal of Jesus is not to make us more right, but to make us more loving. In fact, without love, we are nothing more than a clanging cymbal or a sounding brass, according to the Apostle Paul. Rick Renner is right when he points out when Paul wrote about a sounding brass, he borrowed an illustration from the pagan world of Corinth to make his point about super righteousness, super righteous people who demonstrate no love. The illustration he chose to use was the endless, non-stop, annoying, aggravating, irritating, frenzied beating and clanging of brass that was performed in pagan worship and that echoed ceaselessly throughout the city of Corinth. The citizens of Corinth could never escape the endless banging of this metal, so this was an illustration everyone in the Corinthian church could readily comprehend. The issues that are clanging in the air on marriage, sexuality, parenting, and who can be welcomed into our churches are likely to outlast us all. But this we can be sure of when we listen and care and fellowship with one another. We will come a lot closer to the answer than all the arguing will ever accomplish. The biblical model, at least the one Jesus left us, is plain. By this, all will know you are my disciples because you have love for one another. God loves us, and that includes our families struggling with so many issues. So much we do not fully understand, but we can understand this. God's love is not limited and it does not change. Let us pray. Oh God, make love the standard of all we do both in and out of the church. Help us to focus on the author and perfecter of our faith and be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Oh God, a church like that is what our world needs, our community needs, we all need. Help us be your church. Amen.